All right, Boker Tov, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. We uh, continue this week with the reading of Parsha's Bo, page 340. Our fantastic story continues to unfold. As we spoke about last Shabbos, the uh, purpose of the story was not to study history. When we go through these Parshios, last week, Vaira, Bo, Bishalach, and so on, we're not opening a history book and gathering in order to study history, to recount history, to be marveled by history. We're reading about something which is supposed to inspire our present. It's supposed to inform, not the past, but the present. Right? That was the drush I gave the Shabbos. That the purpose of all of these things is as Hashem tells us in the beginning of this Parsha. Page 340. Again, we'll begin with our overview of Parsha's Bo, and then we'll get into the Pesukim. But God makes, doesn't uh, hide anything. He tells us exactly why. Why the pomp and circumstance? Why the sound and light show? Why the fireworks? God could have blinked His eyes, we would have been Adam and Mitzrayim could have been much more simplified. Why is it so extravagant and complicated? And why is it so redundant? Ten plagues, one's not enough? Okay, Kosh Baruch we're impressed. Okay, you got us, we're impressed. So you are the omnipotent one, you control the world. We got it. After one, after three, after five, ten. So Hashem tells us, why? I did all of this, including hardening God, the Paro's heart, in order to put these signs out there. Why? Why am I doing all of this? Why is it so extravagant? Says God, so that you'll put it in your kids' ears, and your grandchildren's ears, and you'll tell them. When they get so smart, and so independent, and they become so sophisticated, and they say, I'm not sure there's a God, I'm not sure He's involved in my life, I'm not sure He's really there, I'm not sure there's really meaning and purpose that all this makes sense. You're going to point to these plagues and you're going to say, I heard from my grandfather, who heard from his grandfather, who heard from his grandfather, that God once reversed the rules of nature, transcended the rules of nature, ten times performed the most magnificent plagues in Egypt, and He did it all so that it would be embedded within our tradition, that God didn't create a world and move on, but that He remains an active part of our destiny. So again, as we spoke about last Shabbos morning, all of these plagues, these makos, the first seven of which we studied in last week's parsha, and the last three of which we'll see today, they're designed not to influence Paro. God could have smacked Paro on the head once, and the Jews would have been let out. God, we've seen, we've seen incredible reversals in our lifetime. The fall of the Soviet Union. We've, there are countless examples. It took a lot less than the ten plagues in order for God to make a huge shift in history. And if God wanted to do it then, He easily could have. But that wasn't His goal. His goal was not to convince Paro. He could have coerced Paro. His goal was to convince us to transform a slave nation into a free-minded, into a free-will choosing people who would choose meaning and purpose who would choose a relationship with him and to do so it wouldn't be through words the people rejected the words of Moshe it would be through small victories it would be through their recognizing they don't have to be a victim of circumstance they don't have to be resigned they don't have to be submissive they don't have to be apathetic and passive but they're capable of recognizing that circumstances can change that conditions can shift and therefore to embrace a new reality. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu went through this. This is not a parish. This is not me making this up. This is, I just read the Pasuk. It's the beginning of Parsha's bow. God says, you want to know why I did all of this? This is why, not Paro. 
I hardened his heart, God says. I wanted to get this out there, that I'm capable of doing this. And why did he want it out there? In order to convince and in order for, for us to understand. So when we read these parshios, last week and this week's parsha, we're not reading history. We're not reading a history book. Oh, it's so interesting, thousands of years ago, very fascinating, and how it happened, and let's study the trends, and let's see the nuance. We're not studying history. We're trying to inspire and inform our present, that if we feel resigned, submissive, apathetic, indifferent, passive, that if we tap into these parshios, we say, it happened then, and he did it then, so we could find strength and inspiration now. So it's a very powerful, Torah is not a history book. There's a lot of evidence, it's not written to capture history. It omits much of our history, it relays our history out of order, in muktamam urcha Torah. It's not a history book. It's supposed to inspire and inform us. So we saw the first seven plagues that were there designed for us, Last week, and we pick up with the last three. The first of which is Arbet locusts, which uh, spread all over Egypt and really devastated them to the port, point, point that Paro's uh, servants came to him and said, No, it's enough. And what happens? Paro calls for Moshe and says, the begins a conversation at the bottom of page 340. It's so devastating, this plague, Paro begins to soften. You begin to see a crack. Okay, let, let's, let me entertain this. Right? It's like your kid pesters you over and over and over and over and over again. I want to go, I want to go, I want to sleep with a friend, I want to sleep with a friend for New Year's, I have off, I want to go, I want to go. Finally say, okay, fine. I'm not saying yes, but just tell me. Who would the friend be? What would you be doing? Let me at least hear. What, what, what? So Hashem says, Mi Paro says rather, Mi I'm not saying yes. But if you want to go, who's going? And here we have a fascinating conversation, which I'll speak more about on Shabbos morning, I think. Never before on a Tuesday have I told you what I'll speak about on Shabbos morning. <laughs> But this week we happen to have a special Shabbos designated for advocacy for um, tuition assistance that we're going to be working. And we have a special speaker coming and we're going to be working about the uh, state's uh, sponsor, uh, scholarships and, and being able to uh, access greater funds to help relieve some of the tuition burden and crisis. So this is the perfect thing to speak about. So Moshe says, Much more than Paro bargained for. He gives them a whole list and litany. Here's here the people who are coming, and here's where we're going. Chag Hashem Lanu, we're going for a Chag. And uh, so Paro says, Paro says, no. He rejects the proposal. and says, no. The uh, priests can go, that's what you've asked, and Paro sends them out. He gets rid of them. And uh, then the Arbe come. This is not, this is before the Arbe. This is before the Arbe, this is part of the threat. And then the Arbe, the locusts come, and they suffer terribly. The ninth plague, top of page 344, we're just doing our quick overview, and then we'll get into the Psukim. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness darkness on all of Egypt and the darkness will be tangible what's unusual what's peculiar about this plague of darkness normally we think of plagues as ascending in severity we think of the plagues as getting worse more intense more severe more punitive and yet we come to the ninth the second to last the penultimate plague and it's choshech darkness is darkness devastating what's so horrible about darkness I mean, think about darkness for a moment. We've all suffered from dark. I mean, we never had a blackout. You never, had a, you never woke up in the middle of the night and the light was off and you had to make your way across the room to the light switch. 
Yeah, darkness is it's annoying. You stub your toe. It's inconvenient. But is darkness a devastating plague? That the ninth plague in ascending order should be darkness? So many Mephoshim get into this question just very quickly because this is not what we're studying this week. The Rabag says the darkness was not just the absence of light. When we experience darkness, you wake up in the middle of the night, the light's off, that's just the absence of light. The Rabag says this darkness was tangible. Vayomesh Choshech. It was palpable, but it could be felt. It was like a cloak of darkness. It was like a fog. You lived in this cloud, excuse me, that you perceived, that you felt. It was palpable. Rishon Shonofalher says, it was the most, quote, it was the most complete and most comprehensive literal suffering. It meant each man being held, chained, and fasting to the spot in which he happened to be. So Rav Hirsch says, this darkness is midah keneged midah. What this darkness was the equivalent was, it made the Egyptians each live in a solitary confinement. The worst punishment we know, a person who's, who's imprisoned, the worst punishment in prison is solitary confinement. To be isolated, to be alone, to have no access to other people, to companionship, to read, to keep busy, to write, to be alone and inactive, solitary confinement, when one is incarcerated, is the worst punishment there is. So says Rav Shamshan Fal Hirsch, that's what Choshech was. It's not just they woke up in the middle of the night, it was a little dark. It was solitary confinement. They were, it was so dark that they were in their Dalit Amos. They were limited, they were confined to their small space. They couldn't connect with others, they couldn't communicate with others. And says Rav Hirsch, this is Midah Kenegid Midah. They had imprisoned the Jewish people, now they experienced imprisonment. They had made the Jewish people live alone, isolated, now they experienced it. Midah connected Midah. The Torah Tamima, Rav Baruch HaLevi Epstein, has a novel interpretation. He says, no, the darkness was not in the environment at all. Any ophthalmologists here? The darkness was, they each simultaneously, the Egyptians were all simultaneously, they all received the same eye disease. I don't know, cataract, macular degeneration, I don't know exactly what it was, macular edema, whatever their terrible eye disease, they each simultaneously came down with the same ophthalmological, is that a real word? Did I make it up? Ophthalmological disease. That's what the Torah Tzimima says. So, which also corresponds with why the Jews saw perfectly. Nothing changed in the environment. It was light, it was perfect, everything was good. Says the Torah Tzimima, the plague was... They were all stricken with blindness simultaneously. And we know the Gemara says that there are four that are hush of kames. There are four who are considered dead even when they are alive. And one of them is a summa, somebody who's blind. Says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the Sichas Musr, the Rosh Hashim of the Mir and Yushalayim. Says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, why is somebody who's blind considered dead as even, even while they are alive? Because, and, and thank God, through, thanks to a lot of advancement today and a lot of access given to people who are blind, Baruch Hashem, it's not true, or not as true. But says of Chaim Shmulevitz, somebody who has no interaction with others, somebody who feels isolated, who feels abandoned, who feels alone, is, is as if they're not, not alive. An Ani, a poor person, is one of the other four who are considered dead even while they're alive. So, uh, a Metzora is a third person. So says Chaim Shmulevitz, what all these have in common is, whether it's the indigent person who feels utterly dismissed and marginalized by society, whether it's the Mitzorah who has to badad yeshev michutz who has to live alone outside of the camp, whether it's the blind person who feels disconnected. Everyone else, ah, did you see that? Yeah, see what? The, these people feel isolated and alone, and that feeling is chashev kemes. 
That feeling is you feel insignificant. You feel worthless. You feel you might as well not be here. So therefore, says the, the uh, Torah Tamima, their blindness made everyone feel of kemes. It was the harshest punishment. But the Chayyudush Arim gives one last... It's not our section that we're studying, but I couldn't help but communicate all these ideas to you because I love this. The Chayyudush Arim says a uh, homiletical interpretation. The first Gera Rebbe. He says homiletically that the entire plague of Choshech, right, we started, we said, what was so devastating? We've all lived in a blackout. This is the ninth plague. Says, says uh, the Chidusha Arim, yes. You know what the plague of darkness was? It was metaphorical. Light is the capacity to see other people in our lives. Light is the capacity to care for others, to be involved with others, to connect with community. Darkness is to live an egocentric life. Darkness is to be self-centered. Darkness, we create darkness in our world, in our life, when all we care about is the pursuit of ourselves, our interests, our success, our needs, our happiness. You'd say about such a person, someone who's so egocentric, somebody who's so self-centered, you'd say they're cloaked in darkness. So says the Chidush Arim, that's the Pshat in the Pasuk. Vahi choshech afeila b'chol eretz mitzrayim shloshes yamim. The darkness fell. Three, we're on page 344, verse 22. The darkness fell on the Egyptians for three days. Velo ra'u ish es achiv. Verse 23. Velo ra'u ish es achiv. No person could see his brother or sister. Says the Ger Rebbe, when you live a life without even seeing the person next to you, then you're covered in darkness. You're blind to what life is all about. They didn't see or care about or connect with anyone around them. So the Choshech, the ninth plague was that they were so scared, that they were so anxious, and they were so nervous, they became totally self-centered. They turned totally inwards. They didn't care about others. They didn't connect as a community. And to live that way is to live a life cloaked in darkness. So this plague of Choshech, the Rabag says, means it was a palpable, tangible fog. It was living in a cloud. That was scary. Said the, uh, the Rav Shem Shonafal Hirsch, no, the Choshech meant that you were imprisoned. You couldn't move. You were enslaved. You got to experience what, what you had done to the Jew. The Torah Tzimimim of Baruch Halevi Epstein says they became blind. It was an ophthalmological disease. And lastly, the Chudish Arim says, to live a life of being egocentric and self-centered, that is to live cloaked in darkness. And that's what the ninth plague of darkness really is, is all about. The, um, again, the plague is having its intended effect in weakening Paro. Paro softens each of these plagues. And uh, more and more he entertains the possibility of the Jewish people leaving. But... Verse 27, Hashem hardened Paro's heart and he did not leave. Again, when we read these parshios from the perspective that the plagues are not intended for Paro, but they're intended for us, we understand why God kept hardening Paro's heart. Paro, yes, he's a protagonist in the story, but Paro is, he's a, he's a chess piece, he's a puppet. God is using Paro to set the stage which would allow him to put on the sound and light show that is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. God wanted to embed in our collective memory and consciousness throughout history in perpetuity that he is involved in our lives. The Kuzari writes this explicitly, Rabbi God wanted to embed within our collective consciousness and within our everyday living that he didn't create the world and then exit. Right? If we were to study the evidence for God's existence, of which there is much, Torah, the Torah asserts that you don't have to believe in God. Viadatam hayom, v'ashivosam al-vavecha. Ataharesa la da'as, 
The word the Torah always uses when it talks about our connection with God is das, knowledge. Torah says, examine the evidence, confident you'll have knowledge that God exists. Never asks us to take a leap of faith. Never asks us to believe. Asks us to examine the evidence and to come to know that there is a God. There's a lot of evidence. We could study it at another time. But much of that evidence comes to the conclusion that there is a creator, that there is a first cause, that there is an origin to the world. How do you know God continued to interact with the world? Right? If I argue to you, one of the, one of the arguments is the third law of thermodynamics, entropy, which is that normally in science the world goes from order to disorder, from order to chaos. Your coffee, if you don't drink it quickly, is going to get cold. Why is your coffee going to get cold? Because the molecules are going to begin to spread and dissipate, and it's going to cool down, it's going to lose its heat. Normally, order goes to disorder in the universe. Things decay, things mold, as much as we don't want to think about it. People decay, people get old, people begin to break down. Order goes to disorder. Whenever you see disorder go to order, bless you, what do you know? It's not subject to nature, it's supernatural, meaning there's somebody controlling nature. So if you see disorder go to order, you see a building get built. You had random materials and someone put them together to make a building. You had random ink and somebody put it on a piece of paper to compose literature, poetry, prose. Then you, when disorder goes to order, you know, so this is one of the arguments. We're not spending our time on it now, but you look at the world. Is it less complex than a building? Is it less complex than a book? The world is disorder going to order. Even if you subscribe to the Big Bang, disorder turns into order. There must be a first cause. There must be a creator. There must be somebody behind it. We would never, if I told you that this book is because a monkey sat at a typewriter, if this book is because someone knocked over a bottle of ink, you'd laugh at me. It's impossible. Statistically, it's impossible that that's how it came to be. So what, the world, it's more likely that this world, with its sophistication, came to be randomly by chance? But all of that just points to the direction that there's a first cause. Yeah, you convinced me. Disorder went to order. It means that God created the world. But how do I know He didn't create the world and move on? He moved on to His next project. The artist who made a painting, I look at a painting, some paintings, looks like Taka, someone knocked over some paint. I don't know how to tell it to some people. But uh, people pay a lot of money for that. It's unbelievable. So, but, um, but a, a magnificent painting, so you know that there was a painter. You know that there's a painter. You know there's an artist. Does it mean when you buy the painting that you have a relationship with the artist? You may have not met the artist. The artist may have lived hundreds of years ago. You have their painting, but you don't know the artist. So maybe we live in God's world. You believe that God created the world. How do you know that the artist is involved in our lives? How do you know that he continues to relate to us, to connect to us? That's what our parshiyas are all about. Says the Kuzari, God created the sound and light show. God set the stage through hardening Paro's heart. Right, so Paro's a pawn. Paro's just a pawn in this story. I, why do we hold him accountable? Why did he have to suffer? Because he was a cruel, evil pawn who God hardened his heart, but he was cruel and evil to begin with. So he was a pawn in history that set the stage that allowed God to permanently embed within our memory and our conscience and our consciousness that he is involved and he remains involved in our lives and that's why he goes through all these plagues and that is not that lesson is not learned until the Jewish people are on the opposite side of the Amsuf watching the Egyptians drown when they realize how quickly and radically their lives turned how they shifted how they changed 
they realize God continues to be involved in my life. In fact, I'll tell you something amazing. Rav Yaakov Emden writes, the great Rav Yaakov Emden, those who take people of the book will eventually study Rav Yaakov Emden, contemporary of Rav Yonis and Eibshitz in the 17th century. Rav Yaakov Emden, an important, very, very important personality. Listen to what he writes, quote, I swear, when I look at our nation's existence throughout the exile, one sheep among 70 wolves, this miracle is greater in my eyes than all the miracles performed for our forefathers in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in Eretz Yisrael. Says Rav Yaakov Emden, I don't even have to go back as far as the plagues. When I think about the fact that the Jewish people remain, another piece of evidence of God's existence, by the way, is the story of the Jewish people, is our very existence. He says, but when I study Jewish history, and I understand the systematic attempts to exterminate us, and yet here we are. If I study the Six-Day War, if I study the War of Independence, and I understand those miracles, said Rav Yaakov Emden, with the language, I swear, that's not simple. Says Rav Yaakov Emden, I swear that those miracles are greater. I don't need to go to the Makos. I read a book, I read the Prime Ministers, I read like dreamers, and I study the Six-Day War, and I understand what we were up against and the miracles that had to happen. That's greater than all those miracles. I continue to feel God in my life. And that's why we're reading all this. That's what it's all about. I'm sorry I'm spending so much time. We're not getting to our psukim. But as you can see, I feel just a little bit passionate about this. Okay, so we get to Paro's final rejection, the warning of the plague of the firstborn, the uh, terrible plague of the firstborn, Perikid Aleph. We're going to study this in depth in a moment. We'll come back to it. God warns about the plague, but before the plague is executed, we're given the very first mitzvah in the Torah. What's the very first mitzvah of the Torah? Certainly as the Jewish people, we have Pru Revu earlier in Brishas. But the first mitzvah of the Jewish people is HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem. The mitzvah of controlling our calendar, controlling time. Page 348, Perak Yud Bez. The mitzvah of controlling our calendar. Why is this the first, the very first mitzvah? Rabbi Salavechik would quote the Sforno here. We've studied it in the past, maybe last year or two years ago. Says the Sforno, why is this story interrupted to give this mitzvah? Of all mitzvahs to give right now, Give us Shabbos, give us Yom Kippur, an opportunity to atone. Give us the laws of family purity so we emerge as a nation pure. This is the mitzvah, is the mitzvah while we're still enslaved before our redemption. Says the Sforno, says the Rav. You know why? Because the first mitzvah you have to give a slave nation that really expresses their liberation, their freedom, is the ability for them to control time. You know what it means to be a free man, said the Rav? to be in control of your own time. The slave is subservient to others. The slave has to answer what others tell him to do with his time or her time. The free man or woman controls their own time. It's not controlled by the must-see TV, and it's not controlled by the must-go-to-this, and it's not controlled by the, by the uh, just another hour in the office to make more money to keep up with the job. The, sl- the real free person owns their time. The real free person determines what they want to do with their time. So therefore, says the Sforno, the Rav expands, they needed this message before they left Mitzrayim to understand that real freedom is the ability to control your own time. Rav Asher Weiss, Shlita, in his Minchas Asher, quotes a little bit different, he quotes an incredible medrash that connects the Jewish people are always likened to the moon. We are the moon. We are the, the lunar calendar. That's why it's nice that the Gregorian calendar is shifting tomorrow night, tonight? When is it? Tonight. But uh, for Jews, and there's nothing wrong with being proud that we are finishing another year and starting a new calendar year, and certainly it gives an opportunity to send an email to get everyone to make tax-deductible donations to your chesed activities. For that alone, the new year is uh, worthwhile. 
but uh, you know it's not, again I'm not criticizing nothing wrong enjoy the evening off L'chaim, but it's not our new year our new year as Jews we follow the, the lunar calendar and why is it the Jewish people why do we subscribe to the moon why are we likened to the moon Again, there's endless midrashim that we can talk about to this, but uh, one medrash in Shmos Rabbah here in our Pesukim that uh, Rav Asher Weiss quotes, the believer in the name of Yosi Bar Eli, said that the, the, let the bigger one be like the sun and the smaller ones like the moon. Let the nations of the world be like the sun. We are the smaller one in number. Let us be like the moon. The sun rules only during the day, but the moon rules at night and the moon is visible during the day. How often are you driving and you see the moon even during the day? The moon is evident. The moon is present at both. The sun rules at day. Esav is a portion of the world, this world, but none of the world to come. Yaakov is like the moon, which is small, just like the moon rules at night, but also is present during the day. Yaakov is the world to come and also has a presence here in this world as well. Once the light of the bigger one fades, the light of the smaller one becomes visible. So too, when the light of Esav fades, the light of Yaakov, our light, becomes visible. And of course, the biggest reason that we're likened to the moon is that the sun is consistent. The sun is ever present in the same degree. But the moon, we know, waxes and wanes. And as I've shared before many times, we celebrate Rosh Chodesh, which we're also celebrating this week. We celebrate, appropriate with this parasha, Chodesh Zalachem. We celebrate Rosh Chodesh, the moon is but a sliver. One would expect it to be full. It's only a sliver. Because what are we really celebrating when we celebrate the new moon, Rosh Chodesh? We're celebrating that even when we appear as a sliver, we're confident that we will yet grow large once again. That's why the Ramah writes in the laws of Kiddush Levana. We'll say Kiddush Levana Motzei Shabbos. And what do we say? Says the Ramah, it's minag to say, David Melch Yisrael, Chai Vekayim. Why do you say with Kiddush Levana, David Melch Yisrael, Chai Vekayim? Because when we see that moon, it reminds us that even though we may be in exile right now, even there were times when Jews looked up in concentration camps and ghettos, subject to persecution and pogroms, and they looked up at that moon and they said, no matter our suffering right now, we like the moon will grow larger once again, David Melch Yisrael, Chai Vekayim, that we will become, we will reinstate the... uh, Davidic dynasty, we will experience Mashiach ben David once again. So we interrupt this story, even when we're slaves in Egypt, we're given that gift of look up at that moon and no matter where you're enslaved and no matter what you're suffering, to always know that just as the moon waxes and wanes, wanes just as it's small and grows large, so too will we be. The Pesach offering comes next. This is a fascinating we don't have time to get into this, I still want to get to the Pesukim my mother who's here asks every year at the Pesach Seder, how can we claim that the matzah is the result of we left Egypt in a hurry, what do you mean? God already orchestrates the entire thing long before we left Mitzrayim in a hurry. Here we have the whole mitzvah of Pesach. You're going to set aside an animal. It's going to be an incredibly courageous act. You're going to choose the deity of the Egyptians. And in front of them, you're going to take their deity and you're going to set it aside. Then you're going to slaughter it. Understand what courage that took. Understand how brazen and bold that was. And then God says, we're going to carry out this this 10th plague and they're going to die and then I'm going to take you out of Egypt and there's going to be this exodus and here's how you're going to sacrifice and you're going to celebrate each and every year and you're going to eat it together with the matzah and the mar... So all of it is prescribed. It's all designed in advance. So how can we say historically the reason we do it is to commemorate when it was all prescribed in advance? So you'll have to come to the Seder in order to hear an answer to that question. (laughs) Then we have the obligation to remember the firstborn. My mother's here. You can, you can talk to her after class. Page 362, to remember the Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, we have to remember it all the time. It's one of the memories we carry with us. It's in our davening. It's ever-present in our lives daily. We have an obligation, right? Another question that comes up at the Seder. What's the mitzvah to remember Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim on Seder night? I have a daily mitzvah. 
to remember the Exodus. How does the, the obligation to remember the Exodus on Seder night differ from my daily obligation? Besalavetchik and his God the briskers explain because my obligation daily is a historical. Every day I should remember that way back when God took us out. On Pesach, my obligation is not historical. My obligation is to relive. My obligation, according to the Rambam, is even more. It's to put on a drama. It's to put on a play. It's to actually reenact the leaving of Mitzrayim. So yes, it's a similar route. Daily I remember historically. Pesach, I don't remember historically. I relive contemporary. That's why we say halal at night, halal at the Seder. The halal at the Seder, normally a halal is a historical halal. Oh, when I remember that way back when God did this, I have to react by saying praise. It's unbelievable. But on Pesach, the halal is not a historical halal. It's not a reflective halal. It's a contemporary halal. It's, I just got out of Egypt. It's to think about our own redemption and to be able to sing halal on our own personal redemption in a contemporary way. The end of the parsha is... One of the origins of tefillin, connection between tefillin and the Exodus. When we put on, when we wear our tefillin, we remember this miraculous experience of God taking us out. Now, whew, after this long overview, let's get into the Psukim. Perak Yudalaf, chapter 11, verse 1. It appears on page 346 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Page 346. Everyone see where we are? Okay. Right, where are we, just in terms of the uh, unfolding of our story? Nine of the plagues have been executed. We're up to God, who is telling Moshe and Aaron in advance about the tenth plague, about Makas, Bechoros. Just as an aside, Makas Bechoros, very hard for us to digest. Firstborners, this doesn't sound like the very kind, compassionate God. Every firstborn of Egypt dies. No home in which there's didn't experience contact with death. Why would God do that? How could God do that? What's the meaning of God's doing that? It's way beyond scope of our class today, but I leave that to you to think about, and leaving it to you to think about I will contrast that God calls Bini Bechori Yisrael. God refers to us, the Jewish people, we the Jewish people, as His firstborn. And then He, the ultimate, the conclusion, the climax of the plagues is the killing of the, the death, I should say, we'll see in a moment, but the death of the firstborn. So what is the significance of this notion of firstborn? We have God telling us in last week's part, we are God's firstborn. Then we have the death of the firstborn of Egypt and then we have a mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn so what is this connection what is the significance and uh, I leave that for you to think about but in thinking about it consider some of the modern research about the uh, family order and the role of the firstborn child and I'm a middle I'm the classic middle child so I'm not coming from the position of the firstborn but the uh, if you look at the at the modern research on this and you see that many books have been written about family birth order and your birth order who should you know Yechad and I are both middle children Baruch Hashem we have the most incredible marriage but the books say a middle child should never marry a middle child right well I won't get into the whole middle child syndromes but middle children should not marry middle children oldest should marry youngest they have all these uh, they have all these recipes but um, it's interesting that we have within Judaism this emphasis and it comes out in Jewish law 
whether it's pidgin aben, pidgin petachama, we have it in a lot of different, we have it the bachor of the animal, the bachor human being, this concept of the bachor. You know, for we believe in this, everyone's equal, the bachor gets a double portion, even in halacha. Firstborn son gets a double portion. So, Clearly, Judaism sees a role of a firstborn as being different than the other children, so much so that God likens the Jewish people to his firstborn. In contrast, it's very interesting. I once gave a drusha that sometimes the Torah says, B'ni B'chor Yisrael, the Jewish people are God's firstborn. What does that make it sound like? Does God, that God has other children? You would only introduce someone as your firstborn if you have other children. And yet, on the other hand, the Torah says, You are God's children, suggesting that God doesn't have other children. Jewish people alone are God's children. So how do we reconcile that? Does God have other children and we are His firstborn? Or are we exclusively God's children in contrast to others? Again, all of this is just for you to think about. Let's look at the Pesukim. God tells Moshe, I'm bringing one more plague. Interestingly, He calls it a nega, another, another blemish. I'm bringing another plague. And this is it. This is the ultimate one. After which Egypt is going to send you out. And what will it be like when they purge you? When he sends you out, it'll be... Kala doesn't here mean a bride. It doesn't mean like uh, you send out the bride. It could mean that, by the way. I just gave a shear on in-laws last week in Hollywood. It's very interesting. Throughout, you see it in the Rambam, there's a Gemara that says it in Shabbos, that... The, the history of mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law struggling to get along is actually not a, a, a new history, but is mentioned by the Rambam, by the Gemara. There's a lot of competition between the two, and there's a lot of halacha that expresses itself. It's very interesting. So there's no such kishachokala could mean like a mother-in-law sends her, or like a daughter-in-law sends the mother-in-law out, out of the house. But that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Instead, I'll tell you this great word. Rav Chaim Kanievsky says, how do you say father-in-law or mother-in-law in Hebrew? Chama, chama. You have a father-in-law and a mother-in-law. Chamav, the in-laws. How do you say daughter-in-law or son-in-law in Hebrew? That's brother-in-law. Chatan, chatan and kala. A son-in-law and daughter-in-law. If you're in Israel and somebody says, "I want to introduce you to my son-in-law," how's your son-in-law? They call the chatan and kala. Says Rav Chaim Kanievsky. You know why that is? Because even, you know, when, when that son-in-law or daughter-in-law was dating your son or daughter, they were perfect. They could do no wrong. When they were engaged and they came to you for Shabbos, what can I make for you? What do you like? How is everything? You tell everybody about your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, how perfect they are. You introduce them as perfect. And then uh, five years go by, ah. <laughs> Says of Chaim Kanievsky, they're called Chatan and Kala in perpetuity so that you remember to treat them. You remember nostalgically how you felt about them. You remember to bring the attitude towards them that you had when they were engaged, when they were getting married, when they were newlyweds. If you forever think of them as the chatan and kala, you'll bring that attitude and it will be, it'll be healthy. But anyway, that's not what it means here. Kishachol kala, here in our context, kala means absolute. Kala means conclusive. Look at Rashi. Kala gemira, kalil. It means complete, absolute, categorical. It means not just a few of you will leave, but you're all going to go out. He's going to send you forth completely, drive you out of here altogether as one. It's an unusual formulation. He'll send you out completely. 
So every time you see a redundancy, it should bother you. Right? We're trying to harness a sensitivity to the text in this Parsha class. We always say, if there's a redundancy, an unusual word, unusual grammatical uh, incongruity. So here, Garish Yagarish. Why does it repeat? Garish Yagarish, redundance. Look at the Kliyakar. Says the Kliyakar Perish Rashi, Kulchem Yishalach. It means Garish Yagarish is absolute. Don't think a few of you, the elite, are going to be sent forth. All of you. Paro is going to be so overwhelmed. Paro is going to be so traumatized. He's going to send you all out. Venira Shemilas Kishachom Yuseris. But says the Kliyakar, if that's the case, the word Kishalcho seems extra. Garishi Garishischem. What does it mean? Shalcho, he will send. Garishi Garish, he will surely send. There's clearly a redundancy here that bothers the Kliyakar, even if it didn't bother any of you. Says the Kliyakar, Vomer Ani. So here's my interpretation. Shekain Shekach Perusho, Lefishaya Rabbeine Moshe, Ashenis Bayesh Ki Garsho Parosh Nepa Amim. Paro, uh, Moshe rather, was embarrassed. Twice he's been expelled from Paro's presence. Twice he was thrown out of the Paris, palace. B'makas ha'arbe, with locusts, k'siv ha'yigarish osam me'is p'nei Paro. When it came to locusts, Moshe tells Paro that they're going to have locusts, they suffer, and when Paro then communicates with Moshe, he throws him out of the palace. He throws Moshe and Aaron out. With the ninth plague. Get out of here! Get lost! Paro's had it. So now Moshe feels a little bit embarrassed. He's supposed to be all that. He's the leader. And twice he's been kicked out of the palace. A little humiliating. Thrown out. Escorted out by the secret service. The fact that Paro threw you out, you're humiliated by, you're embarrassed by, you feel defeated by, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's the opposite. He began by throwing you out, but he's going to end by throwing everybody out. The first time it says, says the Kliyakar, that he threw Moshe and Aaron out. But Paro didn't say, leave now and I never want to see you again. The first time he just said, leave now. The second time with Makas Choshech, he says, leave now and I don't ever want to see you again. Says the Kliyakar, Kishalcho is a reference to the first time he sent you out. We read it wanting to know why the redundancy. Pasuk says that God says to Moshe, Paro is going to send you out, he will surely send you out. Said the Kliyaka, what? Why, what does that mean? So he explains, no. Just like God already sent you out, just like Paro already sent you out, you were embarrassed and humiliated, you were defeated that you felt he threw you out. Kishalcho, the same way he adamantly demanded that you leave and he never wants to see you again. So too, Garish, Garish Eschem, know that it's not just he's going to give you permission to leave. He's going to demand that you leave. It's not just that he's going to throw up his arms and say, No, all right already, do what you want. If you want to leave, leave. He's going to say, Get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. So Kishalcho, the same way that he dismissed you and Aaron, 
The first time he dismissed you. Second time he dismissed you and said, I never want to see you again. The third time, Garishi, Garishi, Eschem. The third time he's going to throw all of you out and he's going to not just give you permission, but he's going to demand that you leave and you never want to see again. It's a fascinating, I think, a very interesting read of the Kliyakar. It changes the whole interpretation of the Pasuk based on the word Kishalcha. Pasuk Beis. Daber na be'aznei ha'am ve'yishalu ish me'esra'eu ve'yishal me'esra'usa k'lei chesef u'klei zahav. So when Moshe is warning the people, he says, Okay, everybody, listen carefully. Here's how it's going to go down. <laughs> Here's how it's going to go down. Hashem tells Moshe to tell the people, Say into the ears of the people, please, say to the ears of the people, they should be shoel, they should borrow, they should go to their neighbors, go to your neighbor in Egypt, and borrow some gold and some silver. God will place the chain, I can't translate for you because there is no translation. God will place the chain of the people in the eyes of the Egyptians. Moshe too will grow great in Mitzrayim, in the eyes of the servants of Paro, and in the eyes of the people. Let's examine these Pesukim. Pesuk, Bez, and Rashi. Daber na. Na, ain't na, ela, lashon, bakasha. Daber na. It could have said, Daber, speak, be'aznaya'am. Speak into the ears of the people. It says, Daber na. Bevakasha mimcha, hasira akach, shalayomar osot tzadik avram, vivdum vinu osam, kiem bahem, baachrakin yitzi bechush gadol likiem bahem. What happened? In the Brisbane Absarim, you remember all the way back to Barishas, the book of Barishas, a couple months ago? So, God in the Brisbane Absarim, in the covenant of the parts with Avraham, God told Avraham, Your people, your descendants are going to suffer in servitude in Egypt. He ended up cutting the sentence short. The prediction at first was for a few hundred years more. But God says they're going to suffer. But here's the good news, says God. When they leave, they're going to leave with great wealth. So what happens now? God tells Moshe, Please, I made Avram, your great-grandfather, a promise. I told them they're going to suffer, and the suffering they did. But I also told them they're going to leave wealthy. So I need you to make sure the people go to their neighbor, borrow gold and silver, so that they will leave, in fact, wealthy. Because I don't need Avram upstairs coming to knock on my door saying, Hey God, this is what Rashi writes. The promise to me that they're going to suffer, they're going to be in servitude, that God you fulfilled. But God, that they would leave wealthy. What happened? You forgot that part. Says God to Moshe now, I don't need Avram complaining to me about that. So do me a favor, make sure they leave with great wealth. We're not going to go through it, but the Kliyakar asks here, I don't understand. I don't, you can look at it on your own. I'll just tell you his question. Says the Kliyakar on Rashi, I don't understand. The only reason God wanted to fulfill his promise was to avoid Avram complaining to him. How about because God should follow his promise? Why is it structured? Rashi, by the way, is quoting the Gemara Brachos here. Why is the Gemara Brachos telling us that God, Lashon Na, Enal Lashon Bakasha, Daber Na, please, Moshe, make sure they leave with wealth because I, I don't need Avram complaining to me. That's why God wants to complete his promise because he doesn't want Avram complaining. How about because God is omnipotent, perfect, and infinite and does whatever he says he's going to do? How about because God wants to make sure that we understand that he fulfills his promises? Look at the Kleokar for an answer. But Rashi says, na means, please. God tells Moshe, please, please make sure they are, they are borrowing. Now, oh, so much to say here. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into it at length. I think we've shared in the past. But what, why? It's very troubling. Vishalu. They're going to go to the neighbor and ask to borrow, but really they're going to steal? Nice. This is how we're formed as a nation. Jewish people come into being through scandal. Right? The Egyptian Times had on the cover page, the headline, Jews leave Egypt, steal on their way out. What's going on? So clearly this bothered some of our Mephorshim. The Rashbam. Look at the Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, Rashi's grandson. Vishalu says the Rashbam, L'shem Matana Gemura. Ah, it doesn't mean borrow. It means a permanent gift. You're going to get a, a, a going away gift. A going away present. On the way out. An annuity on the way out. Now understand that according to most commentaries, that they are bothered by this, this wasn't stealing. Jewish people had just spent 210 years. How much were we compensated? How well were we paid? This is like saying the reparations from the Germans is stealing. Are we stealing when we take reparations from the Germans? Now again, it's a little disturbing because we would like to think that after liberation, Jews didn't randomly go into a German's home and take their things. It was organized, the reparations. But understand that we were due all of this money. It was earned. It was worked for. We were due it. And again, the Rashbam says that we didn't just ask to borrow it in a very disingenuous fashion, but rather, Matana Gemura. It was complete. Now, don't think that they haven't tried to take it from us. A few years ago, an Egyptian, an Egyptian professor at a university in an international court of law tried to sue the Jewish people. He added up what all of this wealth would have been, plus inflation, I forgot the number, some astronomical number, and he literally, in an international court of law, tried to sue the Jewish people for this amount of money claiming we stole it all those years earlier. So here's the good news. He wasn't the first. In the time of Alexander the Great, the Gemara tells us, the Egyptians even then tried to sue the Jewish people and say, we stole all this money on our way out. So the Jewish defense attorney in the court, Alexander the Great's great court, says the Gemara, you know what his answer was? This is fantastic. A Jewish cup. This is why we're lawyers. He said, how do you know we took all that money on the way out? What's your evidence we took the money on the way out? Where did you get that from? What's your evidence? What's Exhibit A? He says, you know what Exhibit A is? Parshas Bo, Perak Yeralef, the stone Chumash. It says the Jews, when they left, went to the neighbor and took gold and silver. So said the Jewish defense attorney, good. And who told them to do that? God. In other words, whatever your evidence is that we did it, also is evidence that it was from above that it was divinely ordained, that this was God's master plan, that it was orchestrated from the Almighty. So just as in the time of Alexander the Great, so too now. It clearly is a, a conversation that's worth having. Why would God create the beginning of our people around something disingenuous? So you have to either reinterpret v'yishalu to not mean to borrow, but it means to receive compensation. On your way out, tell your Egyptian neighbor, this is for building your pyramid. This is for mowing your lawn. This is for cooking your dinner. This is for doing your laundry. Take a piece of gold and silver and uh, make them understand that this is your compensation, but clearly it needs to be addressed. But what I want to share with you now is an incredible reinterpretation of the Gra. The Vilna Gon was bothered. The Vilna Gon is bothered. This appears in the Gra's Adera and this Kol Eliyahu. Kol Eliyahu, the Sefer Kol Eliyahu. The Vilna Gon, collection of the Vilna Gon's interpretations on Chumash. Says the Vilna Gon, Rav Eliyahu Kramer of Vilna. He's bothered. Daber na. Rashi says, Ein bakasha. That God told Moshe, please speak into the ears of the Jewish people. Daber na. What's troubling about that? 
Do you really need to say please to a people when you're telling them, hey, bunch of slaves, I'd like you to go amass great wealth. Go, collect, go to the bank and deposit as much money as you like. Here's a shopping cart. Go through the mall and take whatever you want. Would you re- Is that when you need to say, nah, please? Ask the Vilna Gon. Yishla Daktik. I'm sorry, let me, let me, I'll come back. Why would God have to say please? He doesn't say please later. When He says to slaughter the lamb, He doesn't say please. When He says it's time to leave Egypt, go collect your things, He doesn't say please. Specifically for now, no, He has to say please. Why would you have to say please? And the Vilna Gon's bothered by something else. V'yishalu ish Re'ehu. Describe, what does Re'ehu mean? Would you describe the Egyptians vis-a-vis the Jews as Re'ehu? Re'ehu and Re'usa? You'd say you're Adon, your master. Go to your neighbor, your Shachain. But your Re'a? That's how you're describing the Jew, the, the, the Egyptian vis-a-vis the Jew? Go to your Egyptian Re'a and take their things? The Vilna Gon's bothered. What? Slave mentality. So maybe Reyes, because they didn't see it any other way. You're friends with your taskmaster because that's your reality. Maybe. But the Gon doesn't see it that way because halachically he makes an argument. Says the Gon, Yishladaktik. Hello, Mafurash. Ubn Israel also gives our Moshe Vishlum Mitzrayim Klay Kesef. Machi Dishrashi Bizar. Omni Yishlomer. Gemara Zara. Hine Yisab Mesechis Baba Kama. Gemara Baba Kama Lamid Bey says, Lamid Vav says, Shorsha Yisrael Shinagach Shorsha Mitzri, Potter. If an ox of a Jew gores an Egyptian ox, a non-Jewish ox, we're exempt. I'll leave aside that difficult halacha for the moment. How do we know that law, that if a Jew's ox gores an ox of a non-Jew, we're exempt? Because the verse says, If a person's ox gores the ox of re'ehu. Says the Gemara, re'ehu v'lo mitri. Re'ehu means dafka, a Jew. Only a Jew, only your fellow Jew, your brother or sister, is called Yorea. In Cain, Kan, Hayakashal Arashi, Eich Namalael, Daber Nabaz, Neaam, Vishaluish Mesreeu, Hainua Mitzrim, Hakaimalan, De Mitzri, Einenubachlau Reeu. How could you say in this verse, Reeu means go to your Egyptian neighbor and take their gold and silver? And why would God have to say no? Why would God have to say please if that's the instruction? They would be running to do that. Listen to what the Vilnagon says. Unbelievable. Says the Gon. I'll tell it to you outside. Says the Gon, this was not an instruction to go to the, Jew, the Egyptian neighbor. This was an instruction to set up a chesed committee among the Jewish community in Egypt. Before you can be liberated, before you can leave, before you can become a, na- a nation, daber na ba'azneha'am, please communicate to the people, even though they're enslaved, even though right now, they, they don't have the free mentality that says meaning and purpose and higher calling and set up a chesed gemach. Nevertheless, They need to show chesed even in Mitzrayim. Chesed olam yibaneh. The world is built on chesed. This nation is going to be founded on chesed. For them to leave properly, in the proper way, they need to begin with chesed. They need to begin with chesed. 
That's what the Gonor writes. That's why the next Pasuk says Why were they ingratiated in the eyes of the Egyptians in the very next verse? What changed? These slaves, these low-life Jews all of a sudden became the the Envy of Egypt? Chain? Oh, they're so charming, those Jews. What was so charming about them? Says the Gon, because when the Jews set up a chesed committee, when they set up a glending gemach, when they set up a society of kindness, oh, now the Egyptians, there was chain. Now they were eager to let them go. Now they were eager to say, here's my gold and silver. Because if you're using it to olam chesed yibaneh, now they were ready to give. Again, this is not some Rebbe, some homiletical interpretation. This is the Vilna Gon, who's usually very loyal to the text. The Vilna Gon is very connected to the text. So the Vilna Gon's explaining, before the Jews could go take gold and silver from the Egyptians, they had to prove that they would do the right thing with it. They had to prove they were setting up a chesed gemach. It's an entirely new way of interpreting this psukim. And that's why you had to say, no, it's not easy to get people to give tzedakah. When you send that email, you've got to say, please. When you're asking people to contribute to your, to your gemach, to your chesed community, to Tomchei Shabbos, when you're soliciting funds, you have to say, please. Daber, no, you have to say, please. Explains the Vilna Gon. They said please because they were setting up a first a Chesed Gemach. The Chafetz Chaim, Allah Torah. The Chafetz Chaim's commentary on the Torah, Rabbi Yudin points this out. I don't know if it's in his new book or not, but I once heard him say it. Chafetz Chaim points out on the Torah. That's the Pshat and the Pasuk. Nachisa Bechastacha, Amzu Ga'alta. Nachisa Bechastacha, Amzu Ga'alta. The verse that we say. It's only Bechastacha when we displayed Chesed, Amzu Ga'alta. God was ready to redeem us when we showed that we were thinking beyond ourselves. When we were selfless instead of selfish. When we set up this chesed committee of Daber Am, it's only then, it's that's when the redemption, that's when the redemption came. So if we wanted to be treated as a nation with a destiny and a purpose, we had to act as a nation with a destiny and a purpose. We had to first create this chesed society. We had to first create this chesed committee. It's the entirely new way that the Vilna Gon interprets these psukim. Let's, I thought we were going to get through the entire parak Yudal. Ha! Wishful thinking. Okay. But let's just do a drop more. We have a couple more minutes. The... Um, the Vilna Gon just explained his, his approach. The, the Ibn Ezra says, What does it mean God placed the chain in the eyes of the Egyptians? God fulfilled his promise of meaning when you go to take from the Egyptians, the reason you'll be able to leave with their gold and silver is because they have found chain in their eyes. But the Ramban sees it differently. Look at the Ramban. What does it mean that God placed Chain in the eyes of the Mitzrim? Says the Ramban, it means the Mitzrim, think about it. The Mitzrim have suffered now nine times. They're about to suffer their tenth time. The whole nation suffered. And why they suffer? Because these Jewish ambassadors kept telling their president, their prime minister, God's going to do these things. Now, if you're an Egyptian suffering, 
Who are you going to blame? Who will you have great animosity towards? You might have thought towards the Jews. Says the Ramban, that's what this Pasuk is coming to teach, that the average Egyptian on the street didn't blame the Jew, but blamed their leadership. Why in the world does Paro blame the corrupt leadership who refuses to let the people go? He's welcoming the plagues upon the people, and therefore that's the chain that the Jews earned in the eyes of the Egyptians, is that they didn't become the, the uh, scapegoats, they weren't blamed. Continues the Ramban, Gama Ish Moshe, Especially Moshe. Moshe, who is the catalyst for the plagues, you would think the Egyptians would point a finger and blame. You'd think they'd put posters all over of Moshe. Moshe would be the target practice at the Egyptian firing range. But no, Moshe's steam grew in the eyes of the Egyptian because they understood that he was only the mechanism through which the plagues visited them, but he was not the cause. Says the Ramban, this Pasuk means, Who's the Ve'inei Ha'am? Who's the Ve'inei Ha'am at the end of the Pasuk? Which Am? The Jews or the Egyptians? So says the Ramban first, it means the Jews. The Jews who had rejected Moshe previously, the Jews who previously said to Moshe, you're our leader, what do you know? You grew up in a palace in the lap of luxury. You're promising us redemption? What do you know from suffering? Get lost. They refused to embrace his message. Says the Ramban, now that Moshe's gone nine for nine on plagues, oh, maybe, maybe he does have some, some credibility. But Yeshomrim, but then the Ramban offers a second interpretation. Ki ha'am, am mitzrayim. Am mitzrayim. Who's the ve'nei ha'am is not the Jews, but Moshe grew in the eyes of the Egyptians. V'lo amar ve'nei paro ve'nei avadav, ki Hashem emetz az libo keneged Moshe, v'deber lo shelo kahogen ata pa'amayim. Paro, Moshe never grew in the eyes of Paro. Paro never began to admire Moshe. Because Moshe, Paro rather, spoke very harshly to Moshe twice. The Ramban ends by saying that Pasuk Beis and Pasuk Gimel have nothing to do with one another. The fact that the Jews were destined to go take the gold and silver has nothing to do with the Chain. The Ibn Ezra interpreted them as being connected. Why were the Jews able to go take the gold and silver? Because they had earned Chain in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Ramban says, no, these Psukim have nothing to do with one with the other because they earned the Chain even before they went to go take the gold and silver. So we have three interpretations, the Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, and this radical new interpretation of the Vilna Gon, who sees this not as an instruction vis-a-vis the Egyptians, but rather a mandate and obligation to set up a Chesed committee, to set up a Gemach, uh, even before they left Mitzrayim. There was a lot more I wanted to talk about, but we are out of time. So have a fantastic rest of the week. Have a meaningful New Year's. <laughs> and don't forget, you still have you still have 14, 13 and a half hours to make a tax-deductible donation to the Chesed Committee, the Tom Cheshavis Scholarship Fund. 100% of the money goes to its cause. Zero overhead. You go on the show website and make a donation.